Well, greetings all. It is good to be with you. Thank you for joining us for our virtual service. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. Right now, we are in the middle of a series we've titled Cries from the Cross, looking at Jesus' final words before his death. As Tab mentioned last week, we're not doing this because these words are, are somehow more important than anything else in our Bibles. They, they are not. Every word on every page of your Bible is inspired by God and is important for our lives. It's important for our discipleship. But we're looking at these cries from the cross because they, are, because they uniquely show us the heart of Jesus. They show us who he was what he was about, why he came, and most importantly, why he's on the cross. So with that in mind, follow along as I read, starting in Luke 23, verse 32. We read, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came away to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and one of the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews... Save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving our due reward. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Church, pray with me. Oh, Father, thank you for, Lord, thank you for gathering us together, even virtually as we are now, where we can gather together around your word, even in the midst of this crisis, to be able to hear from you, to be able to receive from you in your word. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us in your word this morning, that we would see your heart for us in this passage. Amen. Well, this past week, I was reading an article that asked a very important question, one that I want to ask you this morning. The question is, do you struggle, perhaps even after years of believing the gospel, to feel forgiven by God? Do you struggle to feel forgiven by God? Now, as I ask this question, I can imagine you sitting there thinking to yourself, why in the world does it matter if I feel forgiven? Isn't the most important thing that I am forgiven? 
Not that I, not that I feel forgiven. I mean, at the end of the day, my feelings don't really matter, right? Well, I don't know about your experience growing up, whether inside the church or out, but if your experience was anything like mine, emotions and feelings were something that were never really talked about. All that mattered is that I thought the right thing and I did the right things. And, and in some sense, this makes sense, right? Because our emotions, our feelings, they, they can be tricky. The Bible here even warns us about the potential dangers of our emotions. But even though they can be tricky, our feelings and our emotions are very important because they're part of how God has made us. You see, God has made us as thinking, feeling, and desiring beings in His image because He is a thinking, feeling, and desiring God. And the same Bible that warns us against the potential dangers of our emotions also teaches us that they are an indispensable part of what it means for us to be human, and they play a crucial role in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. You see, it matters to God not just that we know that we are forgiven, but it matters to God that we also feel forgiven. But the truth is, this is hard. As the, the troll tells Elsa and Anna's parents in Frozen 1, the heart is not so easily changed, but the head can be persuaded. Isn't that so true? The head can be persuaded. It is relatively easy for us to be persuaded of something in an intellectual sense. It can be easy for us to be intellectually convinced that we can be or that we have been forgiven. But for our hearts, our hearts, the, the controlling center of our lives, they're not so easily changed. It's a lot harder for us to feel forgiven because with our feelings, it's not just a matter of learning new information, but it's a matter of engaging with our hearts. You see, for us to experience a true heart change, for us to feel forgiven by God, we need to encounter and be overwhelmed by His heart for us. And that is exactly where this passage comes in. Because as we look at this scene, as we hear Jesus' cry from the cross, we're invited to see the person behind the facts of the gospel, to see the heart from which it flows, which is exactly what we need to see and meditate on if we are going to be able to move from knowing that we are forgiven to feeling forgiven, which is what God desires for us. And so as we peer more deeply into the heart of God in this passage, we're going to do so first by looking at Jesus' prayer for forgiveness followed by a beautiful picture of forgiveness. So first, let's see Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. As our passage opens, Jesus has been led to the mountain called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And right off the bat here, we see exactly what the Jews and the Romans thought of Jesus. To them, he was to be treated like the worst of criminals, those who were to be made an example out of. 
And as we see in verse 33 that Jesus is crucified between these two criminals, one on his left and one on his right, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy over 700 years before that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. Reading this passage, reading in, in verse 33, it is remarkable the punch that is packed in those three words of Luke where he writes, They crucified him. You see, in these three words, they, de they describe Jesus being stripped down naked and forced to lay on the wooden beam that he had just carried with his arms stretched out. And at this point, large nails, like railroad spikes, were pressed against his skin as a, as a soldier raised his hammer and continued with blow one after another, rupturing wrist and his feet until he is bound to this cross. The cross would then be raised up for all to see because crucifixions weren't intended just to execute their victims, but they were, to, but they were also to simultaneously humiliate them. Which is exactly what we see in verse 34 here. When adding insult to injury, we are told that these soldiers, as they just wait, as they seek to, to pass the time to wait for these three criminals in their minds to die, they are gambling for Jesus' clothes. Can you imagine what Christ is experiencing here? I mean, what would you have felt or sensed in this moment? I mean, just think of the vulnerability and the shame hanging there naked. The, the frustration of being so misunderstood. Perhaps the anger that would well up inside of you at this grave act of injustice. And yet with Jesus, we don't see any of this. It's truly remarkable that as Jesus is experiencing the most difficult thing in his ministry, he is literally at the moment of death. He's not focused on himself, but he is focused on others. As he's on the cross, humiliated and suffering, we see his heart as he does the most incredible thing and he cries out, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. I mean, if that was me on the cross, and it's a good thing, it's not. Forgiveness would be the furthest thing from my mind. I would be hurling down curses left and right at these people. And yet here Jesus is crying out to his Father, praying that he would forgive them. And this here is where we begin to see God's heart towards us revealed. As Jesus hangs on the cross here, the very first words to pass through his lips is a cry for forgiveness. Because he knows that this is our biggest need. More than anything else in the world, what we need most is to be forgiven, to have the debt that we owed God because of our sin canceled. And this is exactly what Jesus is offering here to all who will repent you see, this cry here isn't a, a pronouncement of forgiveness, but it is a prayer that God the Father would open their eyes to help them see their sin, repent, and be forgiven. 
This helps us to understand here what Jesus means when he says, for they know not what they do. This isn't a statement here of their ignorance, of their innocence, sorry, but it is a rebuke of their ignorance because, after all, innocent people don't need forgiveness. But here, Jesus is rebuking them because they should have known exactly what they were doing. And this is especially true of the religious rulers, the very one who Luke shows us in verse 35, scoffing at Jesus and yelling at him, he saved others, let him save himself. But they failed to see that it was precisely because he refused to save himself that he is able to save others. Because as we return to the idea of forgiveness at its core, is the idea of canceling a debt. It, as, but as with all debts, someone must absorb the cost. It doesn't just disappear. I think that one aspect of the, the CARES Act that was recently passed in light of the coronavirus crisis it illustrates this well. No, I'm certainly not an expert by any means on this law, but I do know that one aspect of this bill is that loans are being offered to small businesses to help them be able to pay their rent, to be able to help them keep their employees um, working, to keep them paid, or to keep paying them, as well as other things. And from what I understand, if they meet certain criteria, at a certain point, their loan will be forgiven. They won't have to pay that money back that they received. But this doesn't mean that the bank that issued the loan is out of money. No, in this case, it's the federal government that is stepping in that's saying, I will pay the debt. I will absorb the cost. And while it's certainly not a, a perfect analogy, I think that, that this illustration from the CARES Act helps us see what's taking place on the cross. Because for God to forgive us our sins, someone has to pay the debt. God cannot just excuse our sin or look past them while remaining just. A payment must be made. And the good news of the gospel here is that God himself in the person of Jesus pays our penalty. Hanging there on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of all who would repent and believe, enabling him to cry out, Father, forgive them. This is Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. And as I've been, been thinking about it this past week, I've been, I've been more and more convinced that the reason why so many of us, including myself, have such a hard time feeling forgiven is because we stop right here. It's because our understanding of the gospel stops at forgiveness. But you see, forgiveness isn't the end of the gospel. Forgiveness is just the beginning. You see, the, the, the problem with seeing forgiveness as the end of the gospel is that we can easily begin to think of it as nothing more than a, a get-out-of-hell free card. Now, now, coming from the guy who absolutely loves playing Monopoly, a get-out-of-jail free card is something that is great to have, but it does little to stir the affections. And if we think of salvation, if we think of the gospel as merely a, a get-out-of-hell free card, it will do little to stir our affections. 
You see, if we want to grow in our ability to feel forgiven and to rest in that truth, then we need to see that forgiveness is really the beginning of the gospel. And as we do this, we see that forgiveness becomes what it's truly meant to be, an invitation to relationship. You see, God's heart longs for relationship with his people. This has been his desire since the very beginning when he had perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. But when they sinned, their fellowship with God, their communion with him was broken. We see this dramatically displayed at the end of Genesis 3 when God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from his presence, vividly showing the separation and the broken relationship that now exists because of their sin. And the whole story of the Bible, starting with the promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.15, is the story of God himself making a way to experience relationship with his people. And this was no easy task given the realities of the fall, especially the realities of sin and evil in our own hearts. But God has made a promise. And it's here in this moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross that God solves this problem. Because it's in Jesus that God pays our debt. It's in Jesus that our guilt is removed and that our relationship with God that was once broken is now restored. And now we can have communion. We can experience true intimacy and fellowship with him. This is why forgiveness of sins is good news, because it means that we get God. It means that we get to be with him, that we get to live life with God. And friends, this here is exactly what Christ is offering to us in his cry from the cross. He's not offering us merely a get-out-of-hell-free card. No, he's removing the obstacle of our sin that separated us from God. And here, he's inviting us to be restored to him and to enjoy the sweet fellowship that we were created to enjoy with him. Friends, I hope that you're beginning to see the heart of God, that the good news of the gospel flows from, the heart that longs and desires to be in relationship, to experience intimacy and fellowship with us, and the great lengths that he went to, death on a cross, to make that a reality. Because it's only when we begin to see the heart from which the facts of the gospel flow, that we'll be able to experience what John Owen has called the settled enjoyment of felt forgiveness. It's the first part. Here we see Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. Now let's briefly see the picture of forgiveness that Luke gives us here. Starting in verse 39, Luke records the salvation of the thief on the cross. Now, as I was meditating on and studying this text, it hit me that Luke is the only gospel that records the story. The other gospels mention the criminals, they mention the thieves, but none of them tell this story. Now, I don't know for sure, but I think that the Holy Spirit was very intentional in leading Luke to include this account in his gospel, because having just shown us Christ's heart for us and his prayer for forgiveness, 
Luke now gives us a real-life example of what this forgiveness looks like. Lest we, be tempted, lest we be tempted to think that this is just too good to be true, through Luke, God wants to reassure our hearts here of his grace and his mercy towards us. And as we'll see, there's no better example than the one that we have here, starting in verse 39. In verse 39, we read that one of the criminals who was, who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save us and yourself. Here, one of the criminals joining in the mocking words of the religious leaders, he calls on Jesus to save himself. But adding to his mocking, he says that Jesus should save him and the other criminal too. But then in the, in the midst of this mocking, we see that something unexpected happens. In verse 40, we see that the other criminal rebukes the, rebukes the first criminal saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, we don't know this man's story. Nothing about him is told to us except for the words that we read here in Luke 23. But what we see here are the words of a man who has been changed. Perhaps it, it happened in the moment when he heard Jesus' cry to, Jesus' cry of, forgive them, Father. Or maybe it was in those hours as they, they hung on their crosses when, when there would be times when Jesus would turn his bloodied face to the th in the thief's direction and as their eyes would lock and he would see the love and compassion in Jesus' face towards him. But whatever it was, this man has clearly come to see the truth about who he is and about who Jesus is. In his rebuke to the other thief, he shows a heart that fears God. He, he doesn't seek to cover up his sin, but rather he acknowledges his guilt. He says, look, we're receiving the due reward. We deserve what we are getting. And he declares Jesus' innocence, saying that he has done nothing wrong. Here we see that this thief on the cross understood who he was, and he understood who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing on the cross. And as we continue, he acknowledges that Jesus is truly, and as, we, as he continues, he acknowledges that Jesus is truly king. Just hear his, his final plea in verse 42. He, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, only kings have kingdoms. And here Jesus shows his faith in Jesus as he makes this request to him, asking that him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one whom the others have been mocking, saying he thinks he is the king, or this man has said he is the king, but here this man believes that Jesus is the king, and he makes a request that he knows he doesn't deserve. You see, as this thief found himself in the most hopeless situation imaginable, he cries out for mercy. He longs to experience the forgiveness that Jesus prayed for, and he desires to be restored to a right relationship with God. 
And so he turns to Jesus, locking eyes with him, and he cries out, remember me. Now, not knowing what to expect, you, you can imagine the shock and surprise as he sees Jesus push himself up on the nail, enduring the, the excruciating pain that he would have gone through as he, as he took a breath so that he could say to the thief in verse 33, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Church, this, this is better than anything this thief could have imagined. I mean, you can just, just picture the thief's eyes welling up with tears as he considers this promise, as he begins to see this vision of a future that is radically different than anything he has ever experienced, anything he has ever known, as he envisions a future that is full of grace and mercy in the presence of God. Because that's what Jesus is offering here when he says that you will be with me in paradise. This word paradise here, it, it refers to, to a garden. And in the, the New Testament, it's used to symbolize the place of God's presence as, as the Garden of Eden did in Genesis 1 and 2. And as the garden in the new heavens and the new earth does in Revelations 21 and 22. And to this man's astonishment, Jesus tells him that he's not going to need to wait for some future time when Jesus would bring this kingdom. But that very day, Jesus says, today, even after his physical death, he would have immediate consciousness of being with Jesus, of being in his presence. And in these words here, we once again see, as we saw in Jesus' prayer for uh, forgiveness, that the greatest blessing of the gospel is not simply having our sins forgiven. It's not merely going to heaven, but the greatest blessing of the gospel is being with Jesus, of having communion with him. These are the words that this thief would have savored that today he will be with Jesus. And friends, these are the words that you and I need to see and savor in this picture of forgiveness. If we are growing to grow deeper and deeper in our experience of God's forgiveness, of feeling forgiven. Because it's in this picture of forgiveness that Jesus' prayer for forgiveness comes into full view. And we're able to see God's heart of extravagant grace and mercy towards us, his children, whom he longs to know and be known by. And I, don't, I don't know how that reality is landing on you, but... But God desires to know you and to be known by you. He desires that so much that he went to great lengths of death on a cross where he absorbed the penalty of our sin, the one thing that separated us from experiencing relationship with him so that we might know him, so that we might be loved by him, so that we might love him. Oh, 
too often. I can read through the, the stories in the Gospels. I can read a story like this one proclaiming God's amazing and glorious grace. And I can just miss these realities that are right here in front of me. I, at times I can feel just like Watson in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there's a great scene in one of the short stories where, where Holmes asks Watson, how many stairs are there leading up to his apartment? And even though he's walked the stairs hundreds of times, Watson has no clue how many steps there are, to which Holmes replies, you see, but you don't observe. And I think that that can be true of each and every one of us, especially where we read a story like this, that we can, we can see the amazing truths of the gospel, we can see the realities, but we don't observe them. But as we take back to observe the story of the thief on the cross. The truth is that we should be shocked by the scandalous nature of God's grace. You see, while the Pharisees got a lot of things wrong about Jesus, one of the things that they got right was his insistence on grace. This is why they were often so opposed to him, because he, claimed, he came proclaiming a message of free grace. And they insisted on paying and making others pay for what Jesus was freely offering. And just think about how this message of free grace gets played out with this thief on the cross. This isn't the man next door who perhaps stole a gallon of milk and a, and a loaf of bread to feed his family. This, this isn't even a guy who just messed up badly but one time. No, this thief is a repeat offender. He is on the same level as Barabbas, the terrorist. I mean, this isn't someone that you and I would likely have a lot of compassion for. He's been on the wrong path, making sinful and selfish choices his entire life. And here, hours from death, Jesus extends him grace and mercy, forgiving him of his sins, inviting him into relationship with him, to spend eternity with him. And it just doesn't seem fair, right? I mean, doesn't Jesus realize that this thief is never going to do anything for Jesus? He's not going to be baptized. He's not going to be catechized. He's never going to memorize one passage of scripture. He's never going to serve in a church. He's never going to suffer his faith for his faith. He's never going to do anything that you and I so often look to, to, to that, so that you and I so often look to, to show ourselves, to make us feel like we are somehow worthy of the grace and mercy that we've seen, that we've been shown. But that's just it, right? Grace and mercy aren't fair because they're a gift. They're a gift that amazes our hearts as it offends our pride. And this here is exactly what you and I need to see and observe. It, it's this message alone, because it's this message alone that speaks to the guilt and the shame that so often weighs us down, that prevents these, these doctrines of grace that we so cherish from warming our hearts and from fueling our affections for Christ. 
It's this picture of God's extravagant and scandalous grace that shows us that no matter what we have done in our past, that, or no matter, no matter what we have done or not done in the past, those things do not define us. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness here shows us that we are more than the worst thing that we have ever done. So this morning, are you struggling to feel forgiven because of past sins? Is there something perhaps weighing on your, your heart right now that you are very mindful of that is preventing you from experiencing and feeling this forgiveness that God is freely offering to you in Christ? If that is you, I would just invite you to see God's heart for you and displayed in this passage, to see God's heart displayed in his prayer for forgiveness and in this picture of forgiveness that offers us scandalous and free grace no matter what we have done and God inviting us to experience intimate and sweet fellowship and relationship with him. No matter your guilt, no matter your, your shame, God's grace, God's mercy is more. Look to Christ. See that. Believe that. Trust that. Glory in that this morning. Now, if you're here and you're listening to this and you are just tempted to think that Joshua you don't know my past. You don't know anything about me. I am just too far gone. There is no way that God could ever forgive me. There's no way, that, or if you think that there's no way that God would ever desire a relationship with you, I just want to invite you to consider the message of hope for you in Jesus' prayer and this picture of forgiveness that we see here in Luke 23. And I would invite you to turn to Christ like the thief on the cross. Confess, repent of your sins, and hear God's words of grace to you that today you will be with him. And he will be with you through the presence of his Holy Spirit. The reality, as we saw earlier, is that our debt, is that the debt of our sins must be paid. And the Bible is clear that for those who do not trust in Christ, they will bear the penalty for their sins themselves. But this isn't what God desires. He desires that all would turn to him, that all would trust in him, and I invite you to do so now. And lastly, before I close, I just want to offer this message of hope to all who are hearing this and feel burdened for a family member or a friend. Perhaps there's someone whom you know and whom you love who is not currently trusting in Jesus. Perhaps they are even living a life intentionally opposed to the gospel. Let this story give you hope that no one is ever too far gone. If at the last hour, this guilty thief on the cross can find mercy, so can they. This is the kind of God that we worship, the God who graciously offers forgiveness and invites us to experience intimate communion with him that we might know and feel his forgiveness. Church, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your offer of forgiveness, for the scandalous grace and mercy that we see here in this passage in Luke 23. Father, I do pray that you would give us the faith to believe the words that we have heard.
from you this morning. Lord, give us the faith to believe them, that they would speak louder than any guilt or shame that we might be feeling. And give us the grace that we so desperately need to live in the good of them. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who is risen and reigning with you, one God, now and forever. Amen.